Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. Hello, my name is Laura Fritsch, and I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford. I'm here today with Dr. Horacio Lairigui, Associate Professor of Government at Harvard University. Thank you very much for agreeing to chat with me today. We'll be talking about your paper, Who Debates Who Wins? at scale experimental evidence on debate participation in a Liberian election with Jeremy Bowles. For those who haven't read the paper yet, could you briefly tell us what the paper is about? Sure. We examine how candidate selection with the supply of, of policy information determines its electoral effects. The nationwide debate initiative designed to solicit and rebroadcast policy promises from Liberian legislative candidates will randomize encouragement of debate participation across districts. The interaction substantially increased the debate participation of the leading candidates, who expected to be mostly affected by it, but led to a very uneven and somewhat unexpected uh, electoral returns for these candidates, with incumbents actually benefiting at the expense of the challengers. And what we show is that these results are driven by difference in compliance. Essentially, what you have is that compliant incumbents, incumbents but not challengers, positively selected into debate participation based on the congruence between the policy preferences and the of the constituents, but challengers did not. And, and overall, that actually ends up helping them. Yeah, the paper's super interesting. Um, and how did you come to work on this topic in particular, and why Liberia specifically? So, Jimmy and I have a paper together with Shelly Yu, who's another mm-hmm. graduate student yeah, in the department, Toronto Buying in Liberia. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremy was doing fieldwork in Liberia for his dissertation. Mm-hmm. He went to talk to USAID, the local office, to ask them about a survey mm-hmm. that I actually conducted, which we wanted to access. And during this meeting, sort of like they mentioned that they were doing this debate initiative mm-hmm. together with Internews. And then Jeremy told me about it. And I was like, we should totally try to evaluate this. So mm-hmm. he went back to USA and asked them about this. And they were like, you know, we're fine with that. And actually have some money around. But we had to convince Internews. And Jeremy was fantastic at mm-hmm. doing that. So and, and overall, you know, why it was interesting project, sort of, I have a lot of work sort of on information accountability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, I was attracted by that. But more so because actually I'm very interested about how to transition for like kind of clientelistic type uh, mm-hmm. politics to more programmatic. And in particular, sort of, I am interested about kind of the political economy of this. Right. Is that how can you have a self-enforcing transition, mm-hmm. which in this particular context means like how can you get mm-hmm. candidates to show up to the debate mm-hmm. and provide policy promises, which they wouldn't normally do mm-hmm. uh, because they're specializing in vote buying. That's wildly serendipitous. And you have a series of projects with um, Jeremy. How did you come to work with him? And how do you generally choose your co-authors? Because that's something we always end up wondering. Yeah, yeah. So Jeremy's a graduate student yeah. uh, in our department, and he's interested in political economy, which is, mm-hmm. which is what I do. And he actually worked in Africa between his undergraduate studies, actually here at Oxford, mm-hmm. and his PhD. So like sort of working together, like uh, it was a natural fit, uh, both in terms of like sort of regional interest, which in political science is a big mm-hmm. deal, and, and topics of uh, interest. Uh, but more generally, you know, like sort of the um, my 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 quarters are graduate students, uh, the vast majority of them. Mm-hmm. Sort of, I see collaborating with them as a great way to train them and for them to get a paper. And also, like, you know, I also get a paper out of that. And also, like, somehow, I, I think that, you know, like that close experience can lead to, like, long-lasting friendships. Mm-hmm. And sort of, I mean, it's not like I just write one paper with them. No, I, you know, we continue to work together. And that's something that uh, I think was one of the greatest things of this profession. Of course, if you get to pick the right <laughs> people, but, you know, it's... Um, I guess as faculty, you know, that, that sort of you get to, before you start working with them, you kind of have a sense of whether something's going to work or not. And of course, you select yourself into mm-hmm. uh, 
potentially successful yeah. uh, relationships. Yeah. yeah, of course. My supervisor also says that if he can't see himself doing at least three projects with a person, it's not worth the startup costs. Pro, 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 <laughs> probably not. Yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. I mean I, of course, you do advise them, and but uh, you know, it's sort of uh, it's uh, it requires you know, um, huge sort of, personal commitment. Correct. Yeah. So. How did the partnership um, with USAID and Internews come about? And do you have any piece of advice for finding local partners to run field experiments? Again, okay, it's a big question. So as I mentioned, everything started with sort of an informal conversation. And I think you know, we were extremely very lucky. We were extremely very lucky. Sort of. First, the, the USAID office actually wanted to do, you know, they were happy that, to have the intervention evaluated and they had some money like floating around, which is pretty rare. And second, I think more sort of John MacArthur, who is the... the, mm-hmm. the Kind of president, the local director of, of Internews in Liberia, she was thrilled when she found out that you know about this possibility. She had no clue about RCTs, and kind of when we explained to her, you know, that what could be done, she was like, really, you know, and she she really wanted mm-hmm. to know, kind of like whether like what they thought would were actually did, and sort of and which aspects of the, of, mm-hmm. of the intervention would be more successful. So I think that it was a pretty unique situation, you know, both in terms of like the USAID mm-hmm. position, especially from the local uh, office, which is not always the case, and sort of, and, and Jan's sort of mm-hmm. availability, and she was like so willing to change, so essentially she really wanted to accommodate whatever, whatever would need to be changed for us to be able to evaluate it. And actually, the interviews in the end put them, they themselves actually put resources because they really wanted this to work. So and such flexibility is like pretty rare. However, the good thing is actually uh, because this project was so successful mm-hmm. and actually created a lot of noise, now sort of internews is much more willing to engage in this type of things. Mm-hmm. Because actually it was the first ever RCT. And right now they're even like sort of planning on like, you know, having, you know, like many more RCTs mm-hmm. and, sort of, and make it part of their kind of like the um, kind of goals in the future. So I'm working with them and sort of we're developing projects in Bolivia, DRC and Zimbabwe at the moment. Actually, I just came from the London office oh, wow. before coming here. Mm-hmm. So it's a... Uh, yeah, it's, it's great to try to see how there's a bit of like a cultural mm-hmm. change. And it's going to take time, but a lot of like people high up and, and also high up are very willing to, you know, to make that happen. Mm-hmm. But in, so in terms of advice, general advice on how to find local partners, first, you know, you need to be in the field. Essentially, like, you know, like many times people ask me about it. And so like, you can't just send emails, just hope, you know, that people like gather their interest. It just doesn't work that way. And so, and second and related, so you actually have to propose an evaluation that is, is beneficial for the project or, or the organization as a whole. Mm-hmm. So you have to be mindful that you know most NGOs on the ground have no knowledge of what an RCT actually is, and actually takes them some mm-hmm. time to understand what that is. And sort of and when you bring up kind of like all the elements of the of an evaluation, for them it just feels like adding more work to a really hectic implementation. So the usual selling points uh, is that you know first you have to sort of like explain that you know like why doing the evaluation. You know, make sure that the implementation is going to be much more rigorous, mm-hmm. and that might help for it to be successful. And second, which is kind of, kind of like a cheap thing, but essentially, like they have to understand that if they can provide kind of costal evidence that it actually works or what aspects of that works, that's going to open up room for funding uh, from sort of donors who are now much more interested in sort of in evidence-based uh, sort of uh, projects. And then sort of also like you know, you have to. Be very clear that, and actually, truthfully, tell them that you know you you and your team are going to do everything that they can to kind of mitigate the burden, so the additional work that the evaluation might might actually bring, and actually even go further and say, look, you know, we're going to even make easier life when it comes to implementing the project because you can take care of like sort of like assignment and so forth, which you're going to have to do anyway because you have to randomize that. So that's kind of think broadly like the um, the main points. But going back to my first issue, like you can only do that if you're on the ground. Essentially, this requires a lot of like. Uh, 
social interactions and a lot of explaining. So either way, so it's, I think it's a very important point. Like like from sitting in your office, you're not sure that it's not yeah. gonna happen. Yeah. Because you have to get people to the point where they actually want to listen. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also you have to get them to know. You have to figure out kind of like I mean, it's uh, kind of what they're interested mm-hmm. in, and somehow like it's, it's very important. So like and, and just you know maybe like uh, getting to see that is this is mutually beneficial, mm-hmm. and that, of course then you wonder like how on earth am I gonna end up in the field. You know, if I don't have a project, so mm-hmm. it's like kind of the chicken and the egg type game. And there, actually, I think it goes back to our previous point where, like, it's very important, I think, that, you know, like, you start kind of working with some faculty on some other project mm-hmm. and somehow you kind of end up in the field. And then you start sort of, like, figuring uh, around, like, you know, talking to people and see what they're doing and see, you know, what, what, what's a good fit. And what were some advantages and challenges of conducting a national experiment on this topic of political accountability? What specific precautions did you have to take? Yeah, <laughs> I, have no, I, have, I have no more prepared. So, um, so essentially, like, so there are sort of like a so a few differences relative to the standard like project implementation. Imagine that you do some sort of like some agricultural stuff. I mean, the plants and the farmers are not going to push against you. However, you know, politicians, you know, like uh, they they don't really want you to mess up with what they're doing. And also, there's the broader issue of whether like should you be messing up with that, especially sort of as a foreigner, normally that we, we tend to be to, to work in countries where you know the, the, we're not citizens. So I think that the so essentially you should expect that as default people the politicians are gonna push back mm-hmm. against sort of what whatever you do. Unless of course they see that you know there's something for them to begin with, but it's not obvious that they might even if you're something you think that you know, like, you're gonna enhance accountability and they might be benefited. Mm-hmm. Just because it's not part of the game and they're not used to that, they might actually push mm-hmm. against it. And I have a, the case of we were doing this experiment in Mexico and actually like we were providing these leaflets with ex, uh, information about the extent to which these guys were corrupt. And of course, a lot of these leaflets show that many of them kind of, uh, had not engaged in corruption. Still, some of those mayors got put in jail or were enumerators, even though we're actually showing that some information that was going to be beneficial for them electorally. But essentially, mm-hmm. they just don't want you to mingle with that. So essentially, I think that's an important constraint, you know, and I have suffered from any pushback, you know, Latin, in Latin in projects in Latin America and, and Africa. So essentially, like, whenever you design something, you have to anticipate that that will actually happen and so and take any, like, all precautions to, so you can able to mitigate right. that situation when it happens. So going back to the first point, is that then you have to do with, like, the fact that you're operating in sort of what we foreign elections. Mm-hmm. Is that you know you have to kind of work with a local partner. You have to look at work with a local NGO that is the one essentially that you know is, is kind of like willing to implement it. And ideally, like sometimes they're ideally they are implemented already, and you just mm-hmm. assist them with implementation. Often it's the case that they might not have the money, but you know if that, that budget constraint was relaxed, you know, they would be willing to do it. That's the second best, but you know, like often the closest, the most realistic one. Mm-hmm. Essentially, and, and it's, it's, it's crucial that these guys have a lot of political capital. So, and when the time comes, you know, like they can actually uh, mm-hmm. use it. And also essential for the design is that it has to be completely unbiased. You have to take every single precaution. So that, you know, like you can sort of walk people through your design mm-hmm. and say, look, ex ante, there's absolutely no bias. So you have to block randomize, take into account sort of like party identity and, and so forth. Essentially, you know, you have to be extremely mm-hmm. careful. So essentially when, and not even, but essentially when this actually happens, uh, you can walk them through what you've been doing and pretty much sort of like let the NGO point out that, you know, this is part of like, you know, their civic duty and they're just basically mm-hmm. exercising their, their, their civic rights. So I think that that, that all is, is pretty important. I mean, that said, you know, like uh, 
normally like the, the higher uh, payoff projects are the ones where you should anticipate um, the, you know, the highest pushback. But, um, and your NGO should be very well informed and aware of this. Sort of, uh, so and sort of, and once you're gonna get this consent, and uh, then you should just, like push through. But essentially, like, I think that that's kind of the hardest part of like implementing these type of field mm-hmm. experiments, at, you know, in, in the political context. Yeah, well, was, what was so interesting about this last night, I was trying to see if there was any precedence for interviews to have worked in this kind of project, and I found none. And kind of given the potential impact of the research that would you were doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is a complete a completely kind of like USA slash international mm-hmm. project. So essentially, we had nothing to do with the imp- the implementation. It's actually funny because you know when we were training to get a Harvard IRB, mm-hmm. I was asked about like, well, they were like, well, I'm not sure. You know, I, I can sort of like uh, allow you to to conduct to conduct this type of research activities. I'm like, I'm, I'm not. Sort of essentially, you know, this is like, I'm, I'm, all, all I'm doing is basically just like sort of designing the survey. You know, it's just structuring things in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But this is going to happen anyway, whether we evaluate it or not, mm-hmm. which is very important also for us mm-hmm. to get sort of IRB. I think that of course that's kind of the very ideal world. Not always feasible, but uh, yeah. So it's um, yeah. So it's important to clarify. Great. And did you experimental design over time, for instance, as a result of piloting? So in general, like the the in the type of projects I implement are normally around elections. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's no margin for piloting. So mm-hmm. especially this, this particular project was basically uh, so at scale. So it's like there was like no sample where you know we could try anything. And the timing was so quick, there was no, it was impossible for us to kind of like try to assess whether things were kind of working, quote unquote, and adjust. So, no, and, and in general, my so essentially, like, I have to spend a lot of time and priority trying to, you know, kind of with my collaborators trying to figure out what might go wrong and try to anticipate that. And uh, this is why also, like, pre-analysis plans are so important. It's not, not necessarily because, you know, like, they're going to tie your hands. I think, you know, like, uh, that's a general thing that people want. But, you know, but, you know, subject to the fact that you're a researcher, that, you know, you're honest and you're not thinking of doing hacking or whatever, still is, is a very useful process to sort of anticipate, you know, anything you might need to measure, you know, think hard. Um, but, uh, but normally what you do is, like, you know, you talk a lot with the partners. I try to like conduct kind of focus groups and try to talk to people. Because there's no margin for error. So essentially you try to sort of anticipate all these things. And then at the end of the day, like, you know, you just, you just go with whatever you chose and you, you hope to be right. Yeah. yeah. And then with the benefit of hindsight, what will you have done differently? I mean... Which is admittedly a tough question. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the answer to this would be a lot easier for other projects. For this particular project, I think we were, we were pretty lucky and things worked out as mostly as expected. I think that something that we have, we have wanted was to conduct a candidate survey before the election, but that was pretty unfeasible because they were campaigning, and it's mm-hmm. gonna. I mean, we have been extremely costly to kind of like find where these guys were, you know, so in the middle of the district and conduct the survey. Also, we didn't have the money. We only got money from J-Pal sort of after the election. Uh, but I think that it would be nice. I mean, we have learned a few things that you wonder, and I'm not gonna tell you. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know. Like, but yeah, overall, I, I think that. <laughs> On this one, we did a pretty good job. Great. Um, I'm now going to move to more general questions about um, your research agenda and your routine. So you've written a lot on political accountability and voting behavior in African Latin America. How did you end up working on these topics? I'm originally from Argentina. And, you know, if you look at our politics, sort of a lot of the political outcomes are explained by, you know, clientelism, vote buying. Essentially, like most of our elections essentially have been bought. And that explains a lot of electoral outcomes, um, especially sort of uh, like on the margin. So I always, you know, wonder 
you know, how we could be like kind of stuck in that essentially, like, you know, it's like this, always, everybody talks about sort of Argentina as this, you know, like um, exceptionalism, you know, it's a big puzzle. And, you know, and somehow I always thought, you know, maybe I could add a little bit, uh, you know, by looking into this whole clientelism question. That's saying that we always sort of somehow like sort of like uh, in econ, so it's, it's like kind of not a typical question that, that you, you will look into. And also, so Argentina is kind of very hard to study this, of course, of course, you have some stake on this, and sort of like, and anything that might produce as research could be perceived as biased, even used for you know the wrong reasons. Uh, <laughs> they're very creative uh, at turning research uh, to their advantage. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like that's some, something that was always in the back of my mind. And and after uh, like a failed job market paper in my fifth year, finally it was like you know like I need to know, I need to do what I what I really I'm very passionate mm-hmm. about is uh, to give it a, one last shot to this career choice. And then I'm working sort of on this sort of the issue of kind of like broker monitoring, essentially trying to have like a a view of kind of like how what one is actually implemented from more of like a, from a firm perspective. That's where kind of like most the economic econ angle kind of like more a hazard. And if you look at sort of most of, up to then, kind of most of the literature in political science was mostly about like uh, this very sort of endogenous type analysis of like of which type of voters are targeted by brokers. And I thought, you know, essentially like it's going to go in one level up and try to understand how is that, you know, this this kind of vote buying machines that are organized mm-hmm. from a kind of more of a theory of the firm would be like pretty interesting. I tried something, you know, it worked out pretty well. And so that's kind of my job market paper on kind of like this kind of agency problem between candidates and brokers. And that from then on, you know, so I started kind of presenting that, getting myself more into the literature, which I, I didn't know as well. And that one question sort of led to the other. And, and that's sort of like how things started in Latin America. And then, you know, I had before that, I had some projects in Africa. And I thought, you know, like um, somehow like everybody kind of challenged all the lessons from clientelism in Latin America and they were like, you know, like in Africa, you can't do that because you don't have like well-organized parties, you deserve a young democracy. So I was like, I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. So kind of like I picked up on that fight and that battle, I guess, and sort of, and actually like, so a lot of my work is really about translating kind of what you learn from Latin America sort of into mm-hmm. Africa. And then also in Africa, it's a lot easier to do this type of ICTs. Mm-hmm. Um, people are more willing and you have like much mm-hmm. more funding. So, but I think at the same time, lots of things actually I learned in Africa. I went back to the Latin American context and see that actually that they fly pretty well. So I think it's been a, like a, been a lot of feedback in terms mm-hmm. of like, you know, like uh, what I've learned in both regions. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that, I think we're like the return to our time is the highest, certainly probably in Africa. Also Asia, but I think it's too far to travel. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and of course I have like all these kind of cultural advantage and, and mm-hmm. And these roots in Latin America, my, my wife is Mexican, mm-hmm. so I'm also very interested in mm-hmm. like, the well-being of the Mexicans. So. Yeah, I think that the Latin American, African parallels are clearer than the story in Asia. I mean, so I actually spent like several summers doing RCTs, more stuff on like networks and, and informal insurance, like mm-hmm. in my previous life as a development economist. So actually, but in a funny way, like I was thinking about running this experience and not so much about Indian politics, so right. so and even though you know, actually, it's like very interesting work on in clientelism now. Like uh, this guy Tariq Tasho, um, Avandi Real, who's like amazing uh, job work on that. But uh, you know, it's just basically it's too late for me to. to <laughs> it's very far for, for the commute. I have two kids, so it's like uh, you know, I'll stick to what I know. <laughs> and you've been truly prolific um, during your career. How do you manage to be so efficient? Um, and how does your daily routine look like? <laughs> Thank you. So I think, you know, a lot of the, I think I'm a good manager. I think the first thing is you need to be passionate about it. So that gives you a lot of energy. I'm also pretty hyperactive. So I have the energy <laughs> is always a big plus and has always been a big plus. Uh, with being Latin American. <laughs> and uh, even as well, yeah, 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 of course, you know, like having, you know, like the, 
also yeah, I guess you know yeah, so some sort of comparative advantage for like kind of field work that also mm-hmm. helps and uh, and also you have a lot of connections. But I think the most the, the most I think important thing has been uh, really about like managing and uh, and having like the really like good partnerships. Um, in a weird way, so sort of when I go to Harvard, there were a lot of people working on political economy mm-hmm. and Africa and like. Bob Bates retired, Jim Robinson left to Chicago, even though he was the one recruiting me. And uh, and pretty much I, I would find myself with like a bunch of students. And I was like, look, I can't be a good supervisor and still get tenure sort of, uh, unless, you know, I kind of start this kind of J-pop business model that, you know, essentially you're going to need to have like a this kind of pyramidal structure and, and like and, and a lot of people like my green minds and uh, which you do have a lot around sort of working on projects and sort of trying to like kind of manage these type of things. And I've actually learned a lot about research actually from my students so it's been i think a, a great like sort of symbiotic relationship and somehow you know i was able to scale that up and you know i think going back to the point that like, you know i think like, I'm, a, I'm a fairly good kind of manager kind of like pushing things but also being there you know to make things happen and which has allowed me to sort of like really like sort of tackle a bunch of, of projects uh with great people and sort of uh i think that it's been a win for everybody i think that has helped a lot with productivity i think that you know if i was not Surrounded by such an such amazing graduate students, both Harvard and MIT, because I've worked, worked with great people from MIT, con ah, uh, that would not be feasible. Yeah, yeah, understandable. Scale matters. <laughs> and then finally, what single piece of advice would you give an early career researcher trying to write a publishable paper for a top journal? So the first one would be to actually write a bad paper and try to get it published. I think that the I think one of the the biggest mistakes I did was not to pay attention to their own. Darren Asimovic was one of my supervisors. When he told me like to just like submit some crappy papers I wrote, and it would, you know, I did not expect to get much out of it. But I think you know, like the referee process, it's a very telling process. Essentially, like the job market, it is one as well, but it's probably too late. And hopefully, you wanna have a better job, like a better paper by the time you you go to the market. And I think essentially, like trying, like sort of. Uh, just trying to get out whatever you write as a certain paper, uh, like just do your best and just get it out and see kind of how the process plays out. I think that essentially like at the end of the day, like you're going to have to learn about how that works and somehow backward induct so that, you know, whenever you start writing a paper, you can anticipate all the, all the, bur- the, 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 kind of the hurdles you have to go through. Mm-hmm. So in a funny way, I think it's just, uh, just get your first bad paper out and then you, you'll see that, you know, like uh, it will be a lot clearer, you know, what is expected uh, of that. Yeah. And how much weight would you put on these initial reactions? So, I mean, over time, you put less on that. But at the beginning, somehow, I think that it's good to over-worry. I think, you know, like the anticipating a lot of pushback is going to make you be much more thorough. And so if you can sort of like anticipate a lot of skeptic referees, you're going to go sort of the extra mile. I think nowadays, sort of, especially in economics, sort of like, uh, you know, like we have this massive appendixes, you know, and people expect you to, you know, check. And somehow, like, everything's a reject comment that, you know, uh, unless you're a top person and, you know, <laughs> and it's just, I think things become easier. But essentially, like, you know, everything, you know, it's, like, it's like, if you're a junior scholar, you know, um, anyway, everybody picks, if they want to reject your paper, essentially, like, it's like they just, you know, can find, they can use any, any sort of reason. And so you really want to limit uh, those. Thank you very much, Professor. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. And this concludes one more episode of Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. I hope you've enjoyed tuning in, and we'll see you next time.